Chapter Fourteen, Part Three of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Fourteen, The Monroe Doctrine and the Panama Canal, Part Three. I had done everything possible, personally and through Secretary Hay, to persuade the Colombian government to keep faith. Under the Hay-Ponsfote Treaty, it was explicitly provided that the United States should build the canal, should control, police, and protect it, and keep it open to the vessels of all nations on equal terms. We had assumed the position of guarantor of the canal, including, of course, the building of the canal, and of its peaceful use by all the world. The enterprise was recognized everywhere as responding to an international need. It was a mere travesty on justice to treat the government in possession of the isthmus as having the right, which Secretary Cass, forty-five years before, had so emphatically repudiated, to close the gates of intercourse on one of the great highways of the world. When we submitted to Columbia the Hay-Heron Treaty, it had been settled that the time for delay, the time for permitting any government of antisocial character, or of imperfect development, to bar the work, had passed. The United States had assumed, in connection with the canal, certain responsibilities, not only to its own people, but to the civilized world, which imperatively demanded that there should be no further delay in beginning the work. The Hay-Heron Treaty, if it erred at all, erred in being over-generous toward Colombia. The people of Panama were delighted with the treaty, and the President of Colombia, who embodied in his own person the entire government of Colombia, had authorized the treaty to be made. But after the treaty had been made, the Columbia government thought it had the matter in its own hands, and the further thought, equally wicked and foolish, came into the heads of the people in control at Bogotá, that they would seize the French company at the end of another year, and take for themselves the forty million dollars which the United States had agreed to pay the Panama Canal Company. President Marquin, through his minister, had agreed to the Hay-Heron Treaty in January 1903. He had the absolute power of an unconstitutional dictator to keep his promise or break it. He determined to break it. To furnish himself an excuse for breaking it, he devised the plan of summoning a Congress especially called to reject the Canal Treaty. This the Congress, a Congress of mere puppets, did, without a dissenting vote, and the puppets adjourned forthwith without legislating on any other subject. The fact that this was a mere sham, and that the President had entire power to confirm his own treaty, and act on it if he desired, was shown as soon as the revolution took place, for on November 6th General Reyes of Colombia addressed the American minister at Bogotá, on behalf of President Marroquin, saying that if the government of the United States would land troops and restore the Colombian sovereignty, the Colombian President would declare martial law, and by virtue of vested constitutional authority, when public order is disturbed, would approve by decree the ratification of the Canal Treaty as signed, or if the government of the United States prefers, would call an extra session of the Congress, with new and friendly members, next May to approve the treaty. This, of course, is proof positive that the Colombian dictator had used his Congress as a mere shield, and a sham shield at that, and it shows how utterly useless it would have been to further trust his good faith in the matter. When in August 1903 I became convinced that Colombia intended to repudiate the treaty made the preceding January, under cover of securing its rejection by the Colombian legislature, I began carefully to consider what should be done. 
By my direction, Secretary Hay, personally and through the minister at Bogota, repeatedly warned Colombia that grave consequences might follow her rejection of the treaty. The possibility of ratification did not wholly pass away until the close of the session of the Colombian Congress on the last day of October. There would then be two possibilities. One was that Panama would remain quiet. In that case I was prepared to recommend to Congress that we should at once occupy the isthmus. In that case I was prepared to recommend to Congress that we should at once occupy the isthmus anyhow and proceed to dig the canal, and I had drawn out a draft of my message to this effect. But from the information I received, I deemed it likely that there would be a revolution in Panama as soon as the Colombian Congress adjourned without ratifying the treaty, for the entire population of Panama felt that the immediate building of the canal was of vital concern to their well-being. Correspondents of the different newspapers on the Isthmus had sent their respective papers widely published forecasts indicating that there would be a revolution in such an event. Moreover, on October 16th, at the request of Lieutenant-General Young, Captain Humphrey, and Lieutenant Murphy, two army officers who had returned from the Isthmus, saw me and told me that there would unquestionably be a revolution on the Isthmus, that the people were unanimous in their criticism of the Bogota government and their disgust over the failure of that government to ratify the treaty, and that the revolution would probably take place immediately after the adjournment of the Colombian Congress. They did not believe that it would be before October 20th, but they were confident that it would certainly come at the end of October or immediately afterwards, when the Colombian Congress had adjourned. Accordingly, I directed the Navy Department to station various ships within easy reach of the Isthmus, to be ready to act in the event of need arising. These ships were barely in time. On November 3rd the revolution occurred. Practically everybody on the Isthmus, including all the Colombian troops that were already stationed there, joined in the revolution, and there was no bloodshed. But on that same day four hundred new Colombian troops were landed at Colón. Fortunately, the gunboat, Nashville, under Commander Hubbard, reached Colón almost immediately afterwards, and when the commander of the Colombian forces threatened the lives and property of the American citizens, including women and children, in Colón, Commander Hubbard landed a few score sailors and marines to protect them. By a mixture of firmness and tact he not only prevented any assault on our citizens, but persuaded the Colombian commander to re-embark his troops for Cartagena. On the Pacific side a Colombian gunboat shelled the city of Panama, with the result of killing one Chinaman, the only life lost in the whole affair. No one connected with the American government had any part in preparing, inciting, or encouraging the revolution, and except for the reports of our military and naval officers, which I forwarded to Congress, no one connected with the government had any previous knowledge concerning the proposed revolution, except such as was accessible to any person who read the newspapers and kept abreast of current questions and current affairs. By the unanimous action of its people, and without the firing of a shot, the state of Panama declared themselves an independent republic. The time for hesitation on our part had passed. My belief then was, and the events that have occurred since have more than justified it, that from the standpoint of the United States it was imperative, not only for civil but for military reasons, that there should be the immediate establishment of easy and speedy communication by sea between the Atlantic and the Pacific. These reasons were not of convenience only, but of vital necessity, and did not admit of indefinite delay. 
the action of Columbia had shown not only that the delay would be indefinite, but that she intended to confiscate the property and the rights of the French Panama Canal Company. The report of the Panama Canal Committee of the Colombian Senate on October 14, 1903, on the proposed treaty with the United States, proposed that all consideration of the matter should be postponed until October 31, 1904, when the next Colombian Congress would have convened, because by that time the new Congress would be in condition to determine whether, through lapse of time, the French company had not forfeited its property and rights. When that time arrives, the report significantly declared, the Republic, without any impediment, will be able to contract, and will be in more clear, more definite, and more advantageous possession, both legally and materially. The naked meaning of this was that Colombia proposed to wait a year, and then enforce a forfeiture of the rights and property of the French Panama Canal Company, so as to secure the forty million dollars our government had authorized as payment to this company. If we had sat supine, this would doubtless have meant that France would have interfered to protect the company, and we should have had on the isthmus not the company but France, and the gravest international complications might have ensued. Every consideration of international morality and expediency, of duty to the Panama people, and of satisfaction of our own national interests and honor, bade us take immediate action. I recognized Panama forthwith on behalf of the United States, and practically all the countries of the world immediately followed suit. The State Department immediately negotiated a canal treaty with the new republic. One of the foremost men in securing the independence of Panama, and the treaty which authorized the United States forthwith to build the canal, was M. Philippe Bunard Varia, an eminent French engineer formerly associated with de Lesseps, and then living on the Isthmus. His services to civilization were notable, and deserve the fullest recognition. From the beginning to the end our course was straightforward, and in absolute accord with the highest standards of international morality. Criticism of it can come only from misinformation, or else from a sentimentality which represents both mental weakness and a moral twist. To have acted otherwise than I did would have been, on my part, betrayal of the interests of the United States, indifference to the interests of Panama, and recurrency to the interests of the world at large. Colombia had forfeited every claim to consideration. Indeed, this is not stating the case strongly enough. She had so acted that yielding to her would have meant, on our part, that culpable form of weakness which stands on a level with wickedness. As for me personally, if I had hesitated to act, and had not in advance discounted the clamor of those Americans who, who have made a fetish of disloyalty to their country, I should have esteemed myself as deserving a place in Dante's Inferno, beside the faint-hearted cleric who was guilty of Il Gran Refito. The facts I have given above are mere bald statements from the record. They show that from the beginning there had been an acceptance of our right to insist on free transit, in whatever form was best, across the isthmus, and that towards the end there had been a no less universal feeling that it was our duty to the world to provide this transit in the shape of a canal. The resolution of the Pan-American Congress was practically a mandate to this effect. Colombia was then under a one-man government, a dictatorship, founded on usurpation of absolute and irresponsible power. She eagerly pressed us to enter into an agreement with her, as long as there was any chance of our going to the alternative route through Nicaragua. When she thought we were committed, she refused to fulfill the agreement, with the avowed hope of seizing the French company's property for nothing, and thereby holding us up. This was a bit of pure bandit morality. 
It would have achieved its purpose had I possessed as weak a moral fibre as those of my critics who announced that I ought to have confined my action to feeble scolding and temporizing until the opportunity for action passed. I did not lift my finger to incite the revolutionists. The right simile to use is totally different. I simply ceased to stamp out the different revolutionary fuses that were already burning. When Columbia committed flagrant wrong against us, I considered it no part of my duty to aid and abet her in her wrongdoing at our expense, and also at the expense of Panama, of the French company, and of the world generally. There had been fifty years of continuous bloodshed and civil strife in Panama. Because of my action, Panama has now known ten years of such peace and prosperity as she never before saw during the four centuries of her existence. For in Panama, as in Cuba and Santo Domingo, it was the action of the American people against the outcries of the professed apostles of peace, which alone brought peace. We gave to the people of Panama self-government, and freed them from subjection to alien oppressors. We did our best to get Colombia to let us treat her with a more than generous justice. We exercised patience to beyond the verge of proper forbearance. When we did act and recognize Panama, Colombia at once acknowledged her own guilt by promptly offering to do what we had demanded, and what she protested it was not in her power to do. But the offer came too late. What we would have gladly done before, it had by that time become impossible for us honorably to do, for it would have necessitated our abandoning the people of Panama, our friends, and turning them over to their and our foes, who would have wrecked vengeance on them precisely because they had shown friendship to us. Colombia was solely responsible for her own humiliation, and she had not then, and has not now, one shadow of claim upon us, moral or legal, all the wrong that was done was done by her. If, as representing the American people, I had not acted precisely as I did, I would have been an unfaithful or incompetent representative, and in action at that crisis would have meant not only indefinite delay in building the canal, but also practical admission on our part that we were not fit to play the part on the isthmus which we had arrogated to ourselves. I acted on my own responsibility in the Panama matter. John Hay spoke of this action as follows. The action of the President in the Panama matter is not only in the strictest accordance with the principles of justice and equity, and in line with all the best precedents of our public policy, but it was the only course he could have taken in compliance with our treaty rights and obligations. I deeply regretted, and now deeply regret, the fact that the Colombian government rendered it imperative for me to take the action I took, but I had no alternative, consistent with the full performance of my duty to my own people, and to the nations of mankind. For, be it remembered, that certain other nations, Chile, for example, will probably benefit even more by our action than will the United States itself. I am well aware that the Colombian people have many fine traits, that there is among them a circle of high-bred men and women which would reflect honor on the social life of any country, and that there has been an intellectual and literary development within this small circle which partially atones for the stagnation and illiteracy of the mass of the people, and I also know that even the illiterate mass possesses many sterling qualities." But, unfortunately, in international matters, every nation must be judged by the action of its government. The good people in Colombia apparently made no effort, certainly no successful effort, to cause the government to act with reasonable good faith towards the United States, and Colombia had to take the consequences. If Brazil, 
or the Argentine, or Chile, had been in possession of the isthmus, doubtless the canal would have been built under the governmental control of the nation thus controlling the isthmus, with the hearty acquiescence of the United States and of all other powers. But in the actual fact the canal would not have been built at all, save for the action I took. If men choose to say that it would have been better not to build it, than to build it as the result of such an action, their position, although foolish, is compatible with belief in their wrong-headed sincerity. But it is hypocrisy, alike odious and contemptible, for any man to say both that we ought to have built the canal, and that we ought not to have acted in the way we did. After a sufficient period of wrangling, the Senate ratified the treaty with Panama, and work on the canal was begun. The first thing that was necessary was to decide the type of canal. I summoned a board of engineering experts, foreign and native. They divided on their report. The majority of the members, including all the foreign members, approved a sea-level canal. The minority, including most of the American members, approved a lock canal. Studying these conclusions, I came to the belief that the minority was right. The two great traffic canals of the world were the Suez and the Sioux. The Suez Canal is a sea-level canal, and it was the one best known to European engineers. The Sioux Canal, through which an even greater volume of traffic passes every year, is a lock canal, and the American engineers were thoroughly familiar with it, whereas, in my judgment, the European engineers had failed to pay proper heed to the lessons taught by its operation and management. Moreover, the engineers who were to do the work at Panama all favored a lock canal, I came to the conclusion that a sea-level canal would be slightly less exposed to damage in the event of war, that the running expenses, apart from the heavy cost of interest on the amount necessary to build it, would be less, and that for small ships the time of transit would be less. But I also came to the conclusion that the lock canal, at the proposed level, would only cost about half as much to build, and would be built in half the time, with much less risk, that for large ships the transit would be quicker, and that taking into account the interest saved, the cost of maintenance would be less. Accordingly, I recommended to Congress, on February 19, 1906, that a lock canal should be built, and my recommendation was adopted. Congress insisted upon having it built by a commission of several men. I tried faithfully to get good work out of the commission, and found it quite impossible, for a many-headed commission is an extremely poor executive instrument. At last I put Colonel Goethals in as head of the commission. Then, when Congress still refused to make the commission single-headed, I solved the difficulty by an executive order of January 6, 1908, which practically accomplished the object by enlarging the powers of the chairman, making all the other members of the commission dependent upon him, and thereby placing the work under one-man control. Dr. Gorgas had already performed an inestimable service by caring for the sanitary conditions so thoroughly as to make the isthmus as safe as a health resort. Colonel Gotels proved to be the man of all others to do the job. It would be impossible to overstate what he has done. It is the greatest task of any kind that any man in the world has accomplished during the years that Colonel Gotels has been at work. It is the greatest task of its kind that has ever been performed in the world at all. Colonel Goethals has succeeded in instilling into the men under him a spirit which elsewhere has been found only in a few victorious armies. It is proper and appropriate that, like the soldiers of such armies, they should receive medals which are allotted to each man who has served for a sufficient length of time. 
A finer body of men has never been gathered by any nation than the men who have done the work of building the Panama Canal. The conditions under which they have lived and have done their work have been better than in any similar work ever undertaken in the tropics. They have all felt an eager pride in their work, and they have made not only America but the whole world their debtors by what they have accomplished. Appendix Columbia, the proposed message to Congress. The rough draft of the message I had proposed to send Congress ran as follows. The Colombian government, through its representative here, and directly in communication with our representative at Colombia, has refused to come to any agreement with us, and has delayed action so as to make it evident that it intends to make extortionate and improper terms with us. The Ismanian Canal Bill was, of course, passed upon the assumption that whatever route was used, the benefit to the particular section of the isthmus through which it passed would be so great that the country controlling this part would be eager to facilitate the building of the canal. It is out of the question to submit to extortion on the part of a beneficiary of the scheme. All the labor, all the expense, all the risk are to be assumed by us and the skill shown by us. Those controlling the ground through which the canal is to be put are wholly incapable of building it. Yet the interest of international commerce generally, and the interest of this country generally, demands that the canal should be begun with no needless delay. The refusal of Colombia properly to respond to our sincere and earnest efforts to come to an agreement, or to pay heed to the many concessions we have made, renders it, in my judgment, necessary that the United States should take immediate action on one of two lines. Either we should drop the Panama Canal project and immediately begin work on the Nicaraguan Canal, or else we should purchase all the rights of the French company, and without any further parley with Colombia, enter upon the completion of the canal which the French company has begun. I feel that the latter course is the one demanded by the interests of this nation, and therefore I bring the matter to your attention for such action in the premises as you may deem wise. If in your judgment it is better not to take such action, then I shall proceed at once with the Nicaraguan canal." The reason that I advocate the action above outlined in regard to the Panama Canal is, in the first place, the strong testimony of the experts that this route is the most feasible, and in the next place, the impropriety from an international standpoint of permitting such conduct as that to which Columbia seems to incline. The testimony of the experts is very strong, not only that the Panama route is feasible, but that in the Nicaragua route we may encounter some unpleasant surprises, and that it is far more difficult to forecast the result with any certainty as regards this latter route. As for Columbia's attitude, it is incomprehensible upon any theory of desire to see the canal built upon the basis of mutual advantage, alike to those building it and to Columbia herself. All we desire to do is to take up the work begun by the French government and to finish it. Obviously, it is Columbia's duty to help towards such a completion. We are most anxious to come to an agreement with her, in which most scrupulous care should be taken to guard her interests and ours. But we cannot consent to permit her to block the performance of the work, which it is so greatly to our interest immediately to begin and carry through. Shortly after this rough draft was dictated, the Panama Revolution came, and I never thought of the rough draft again until I was accused of having instigated the revolution. This accusation is preposterous in the eyes of any one who knows the actual conditions at Panama. Only the menace of action by us in the interest of Colombia kept down revolution. As soon as Colombia's own conduct removed such menace, 
all check on the various revolutionary movements, there were at least three, from entirely separate sources, ceased, and then an explosion was inevitable, for the French company knew that all their property would be confiscated if Colombia put through her plans, and the entire people of Panama felt that, if in disgust with Colombia's extortions the United States turned to Nicaragua, they, the people of Panama, would be ruined. Knowing the character of those then in charge of the Colombian government, I was not surprised at their bad faith, but I was surprised at their folly. They apparently had no idea either of the power of France or the power of the United States, and expected to be permitted to commit wrong with impunity, just as Castro in Venezuela had done. The difference was that, unless we acted in self-defense, Colombia had it in her power to do a serious harm, and Venezuela did not have such power. Colombia's wrong-doing, therefore, recoiled on her own head. There was no new lesson taught. It ought already to have been known to every one that wickedness, weakness, and folly combined rarely fail to meet punishment, and that the intent to do wrong, when joined to the inability to carry the evil purpose to a successful conclusion, inevitably reacts on the wrong-doer. For the full history of the acquisition and building of the canal, see The Panama Gateway by Joseph Buckland Bishop. Scribner's Sons. Mr. Bishop has been for eight years Secretary of the Commission, and is one of the most efficient of the many efficient men to whose work on the Isthmus America owes so much. End of chapter 14